America. Still in America. This little town in Georgia. Marion Landry's house. Not only in her wreck of a mansion, but in her bed. The truth of it, more often than not, I wake up not knowing where the hell I am. I've been slipping in and out of sleep, aware of the pulse in my ear against the pillow, the shifting shadows on the snarled bed covers, my mind half-conscious luring me way back to Chicago. I'm in hospital, conjuring up a picture of Charles Picat, his poor head scarred from the surgeon's steel. That must have been five, six months ago. Feels more like a year. I've had my fill of hospitals since this whole thing began. Yesterday, or was it the morning before, I woke up convinced I was still in the hospital in Chicago. Of course, delusions rarely survive the demands of getting out of bed. My leg is still in plaster, and it takes a bloody age to get dressed. Charles Piquet is seldom far from my thoughts, and it's been this way since I began this journey into the land of his birth. And although Chicago is where he ended his days, I feel it's been as much his adventure as mine. His words continue to rise up. I see him. I picture him in that hospital ward, overlooking that big great lake, propped up in a white metal bed. Contradictions, you say? I can hear him. I like to think that I'm big enough to carry my share. I'm lying in the next bed. I'm listening to his rambling, soliloquies, sounds, notes fashioned into phrases, which in turn become some sort of a musical line. Those dark, watery globes, alone in their inward stare, peering into a heaving, unsettled beyond. A forlorn, half-crazed poet moving across the years, scraping and picking over moments of pointed experience from a past that over the following months I would gradually piece together. It repeats a shiver down my spine, calling up a young boy's unanswered voyage. My unanswered voyage. Bloody leg keeps twinging. Itches madly under this cast. And my wrist is certainly not yet up for playing the fiddle. To be honest, I'm lucky to be alive. 
lucky to still be in this world. There's a lovely touch to this old grand. I wonder, what if the malignant tumour hadn't overtaken him so quickly? What if he'd lived? What if this whole affair never happened at all? And a half a year on? I can see how he drew me in, because consciously or not, that untempered mind lured me into his past. But not even he could have foreseen what it would unearth from my past. Charles Paquette's manuscript. All three movements are here, reunited in my hands. Yes, I see you, Charles, gazing down at the hospital floor, through the floor more like. Home. Home. Home is where you start from. He was looking straight at me, straight into me, with those dark, watery globes. Lost him at sea, you say? Full fathom five, thy father lies. Of his bones are coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Or was it thy brother? Oh, my. These words became part of a puzzling verbal map that would guide me through the following months. I say guide, but more often than not, it all merged into a kind of unrelenting incantation which lured me into the troubled currents of my sometimes reckless actions. Our time together was short, yet from the outset there was a connection between us, a union that will always be. I never tire of the view from this rusty old balcony. The garden terraces dropping down to the brook below I know every inch of them. The truth of it, put simply, in some unexpected way, I grew to love this man. I've got this notion to write down an account of how this whole thing happened. I haven't put pen to paper since I was in school. What did my English teacher used to say? Begin at the beginning. It started when I left Donegal in 1984 and landed in Chicago to work for my uncle Francie. He ran a small construction firm with some unwanted assistance from the local mob. 
I began on the bottom rung. I grafted away with a pick and shovel, then as a hot man, and when one of the bricklayers took sick, I started building walls. After that, it was machines, working jackhammers, cement vibrators, driving dump trucks. Then, after over a year, maybe 18 months, Francie brought me into the office to help with the paperwork. This is when things began to go wrong. The turning point was when I came face to face with those unwanted assistants. Uncle Francie explained how it was impossible to operate without them, that they had the monopoly on cement, and if not on steel, on the trucks that moved it. It wasn't that they'd hold a gun to his head if he didn't play ball. It was just they couldn't guarantee that the cement truck would show up on the right day. I couldn't stomach being under their thumb, and it finally came to a head one day. I got the job of handing over our money. Money hard-earned by men I had come to respect. Staring at that big, fat bagman, bending a stick of minty, fresh gum into his big, ugly mouth, I was caught by the violence that welled up inside me. I wanted to add the money-laden envelope to his enjoyment. And I did. I shoved the whole damn wad down his throat. And I kept pushing and pushing until some buck dragged me off and knocked me out. I was lucky. The next morning, Francie strongly suggested that I clear off for a while. He had patched things up as best he could, but he wasn't sure it would stick. So I picked up my last paycheck and I left. At first I lived off savings, and when that ran out, I turned to any odd job. A fair share of busking and gigging in Irish pubs. I always had one eye over my shoulder. I was a marked man. Not a good way to live. Just after one of those pub gigs, the unthinkable happened. My fiddle was stolen. It wasn't just any fiddle. It was a beautiful 18th century Vincenzo Panormo. A family heirloom that had been in the custody of four generations of Gallagher fiddlers. And one day, the man who taught me to play, my grandfather, handed it on to me. I set the case down to keep some old drunk from falling into a grimy urinal in the back of the pub. I took my eye off it for only a second, and there it was, gone. I tore after the wee scumbag that nicked it, tore out in such a reckless scurry that my willy got firmly jammed in my zip. In the chase that followed, we must have zigzagged through six or seven city blocks before I ploughed smack bang into a hooker walking her beat. She ended up on the bonnet of a parked car. I was sprawled out in the middle of the road, 
to any passerby, it must have appeared as one of the more pathetic sights in the history of fornication. Me gasping for air with my bloody trousers ripped apart. While she vented her spleen on me and all the men she had ever met. The thief slipped off into the night. Someone managed to bring me to Lakeside Hospital, and when I eventually came around, it was to the sound of a man in the next bed, talking in his sleep. Jean! 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 I didn't know he was actually calling out for his brother. After my brief bout of consciousness, I fell back asleep, dead to the world for the rest of that day. In the wee hours of the following morning, I woke to the sounds of a piano. The person playing was having difficulties, but still... There was something intriguing about it. Lyrical moments, the likes of which I'd never heard before. I pulled on a dressing gown and went off down the corridor towards the broken, tinkling rhythms. And when I entered the common room, there was the sleep talker sitting at a piano. Mr. Charles Picat the man who was to become the cause of this whole adventure. He turned around. He caught my eye with a look that rose out of the depths of his lonely world. Strange sounds is, I think, what I replied, turning my attention to the music on the piano stand. It wasn't a bound manuscript but a collection of handwritten papers. Not bad for a cripple. Something I've been meaning to finish for a long time. Damn things not right. No. Not entirely there and between his pointed inquiries into my own past, this suffering man played on as best he could, his errant left hand falling rag-like over the keys. I felt sorry at the sight of his obvious frustrations, and when I couldn't take it any longer, I pulled up the piano stool beside his wheelchair. No promises, but I'll have a stab at the bass part, I said. And without another word, He turned back to the beginning, and with a nod, we commenced. Then he rounded on me. Gently! Gently! Tranquilo! Boy, can't you hear? Imagine a composer. A man who no longer needs what he knows. Wants what he knows. 
or thinks he knows, or like a child coming upon music for the very first time. His remarkable musical utterances had made my blood sing, and for the first time in a long while, I'd forgotten my cares. Such a silence between the sound. Part of me was locked up in it. That was the moment when I realised something had happened, an occurrence of some significance. Our time together was short, yet from the outset there was a connection between us, a union that will always be. During that fraught and testing session that stretched on into daybreak, Charles and I managed to complete this music, the third and final movement of a piano sonata. Not long afterwards, he passed away. He left a will. He left everything he had to me. He left a small rented apartment packed with books and memorabilia. I moved in, glad of a place to hang my hat, and I subsequently began to unravel this man's life. But there was something missing, something big as far as I was concerned. The first two movements of the piano sonata. And it was my desire to hear these expressions of a man I had come to love that led me south. It was there I managed to turn Marion Landry's life upside down. Marion Landry our first encounter, with not much more to go by than a smeared address on the back of one of Charles's photos, I ended up at the doorstep of this run-down mansion in Farpoint, Georgia. It took several attempts to meet the occupant, and on one occasion, after realising that no one was at home, I snuck into the back of the property to fight my way through what had once been a beautiful terraced garden. After what had almost become a ritual of ringing the bell followed by several raps of the heavy brass knocker, leaving flakes of peeling white paint on my knuckles and shoes, I heard the dull rumbling of footsteps on floorboards within. The door slowly opened and a jaded, suspicious face stared out from a darkened corridor. Yes? What is it that you require? A distrustful eye, entering a piece of sunlight, is what has stuck with me. Staring down, visibly offended by a man with a bad cold and a runny nose. 
And when I explained that I knew her former husband, this woman didn't so much as blink an eye. No doubt many people have had that privilege. I blurted out that Charles had passed away. And only as the door was approaching my nose did I catch any discernible change in her face, albeit for the briefest of moments. As I was walking off her property, another seizure brought me down and landed me in the local hospital. My head was gashed. The fact that I had run out of my pills had something to do with it. Upon my discharge, the reason for this journey, the search for the rest of Charles's manuscript, was biting into my brain. I walked towards the mansion with the notion of restoring that once beautiful garden, a place that I subsequently discovered was the creation of Charles and Marion. Marion had been his most talented piano student. So with my head still wrapped in a bandage, I imposed upon her once more, and over a glass of iced tea in the music parlour, a room which had seen better days, we had an encounter that seemed to defy any form of normal communication. I don't recall much of what was said, but after a long, uncomfortable silence in which she seemed to be ignoring my proposal, she stood up and spoke. Mr. Galher, if horticulture is your interest, there is a botanical garden in the centre of town. She closed the door on me for a second time. I spent the next few days between my dingy hotel room and some of the local drinking holes. The best of the bunch was a club called Tubbs where there were live bands, blues, jazz, country. Then, on one dull rainy morning, I was woken up by a telephone call from the hotel desk clerk, telling me that there was a cab waiting. And I want to make it clear from the beginning, I cannot afford to pay you a great deal. Room and board and $15 a week would be all. And as you may have guessed, I am not always here, which means you will be on your own a good part of the time. Yes, ma'am, I thought. She removed her sunglasses. The detail sticks in my mind. It was one of the darkest days I can remember. Well, Mr. Gallagher, do you still have the stomach to do battle with this weed-infested ground? Yes, ma'am. Who the hell was the fellow who said, Be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. My time here was not without its scrapes along the way. Marion caught me snooping through her memorabilia. I was looking for the rest of the sonata, and in a flying rage, she told me to leave, kicked me out of the house. Part of me was glad to get out. 
I trudged off to Tubbs Bar. After downing two pitchers of beer, I weaved my way up onto the stage during the band's break and I sat down at the piano. I began by trying out Charles's music and the crowd was, to say the least, not very appreciative. The catcalls grew more numerous. I finally stood up and was about to stagger away when I spied a fiddle on a stool. Without a second thought, I picked it up and I put bow to string and as those fifths began to converge, almost everyone in the place looked up from their drinks. I began to play. The regulars holding up the bar swung round. The fiddler in the band rose to his feet, crossing his arms and staring out suspiciously at the stranger who was hijacking his instrument. I was gradually but surely beginning to sail. Any effects of the beer washed away as the rhythmical winds began to talk to the fingers, reminding them that this is not a shovel or a garden fork, but an ebony fingerboard. By then my joints were well oiled, my mind drifting into a kind of trance. I entered a little slip that my granda swore was handed down by the wee folk. It was about then that I began to miss the sound of a bowron, so I took to improvising on a foot drum. And I couldn't exactly say what the crowd was hearing, but for me, the notes were now flowing thick and fast. And by this time, some of the drinkers were tapping their feet and a few were even dancing between the tables. God knows how long it all ran, for at some point, I began to make it up as I went along. As I improvised within the fairy's rhythms, I could have sworn there was the taste of the salty sea on my lips. When I eventually laid down that fiddle and walked out, there was not a sound to be heard. Walking back to the mansion in that hot summer rain felt gorgeous. And in the early hours, finding the door bolted shut, I shinnied up the balcony. And and let's just say, over the following days, I did my best to make it up to Marion. And I suppose, as she was thawing out, I was warming up, if that makes any sense. And then, Marion's garden the perfumed blossoms of the ancient magnolia, the descending terraces dropping away, each one a garden in its own right. Two newly planted cordelines shimmering in the light breeze, roses, 
ice white and pink, glowing against the solid green of an ancient yew. Further down, the pond, now revived with a few fish and a spray of yellow-blossomed lilies. A serenity that belied a recent upheaval. I got fed up wrestling with crumbling garden walls and I decided to clear the choked up patch of stinking water. I came down one morning, tools in hand, and there she was, pulling out blanket weed. Marion, up to her slim waist in the primordial soup. It was a sight. Beautiful. That's what did it for me. That's when I really began to fall for her. So clear this morning, so transparent. I can almost make out what she calls the summer house. Not so much a house as a shack in the woods on the other side of the creek that borders the bottom of the garden. This is where the second movement of the sonata turned up. And unlikely as it may seem, a piece of my own locked up history. I didn't even know the place existed until one day I decided to show Marion the final movement of the sonata along with evidence that more of the same piece might still exist. I coaxed her to sit down at the piano to play it. She pointed me towards the shack. It was the dilapidated study that had been Charles's refuge. The inspiration for the second movement grew out of his dark experiences in the Second World War, in particular the loss of his brother on D-Day. The writing of it nearly killed Charles. Such torment, such anguish. It destroyed his marriage and could have well played a part in the loss of Marion and Charles's unborn child. Charles kept diaries. During his advance across Europe, he carried a camera. In a bundle of photos, I found a ghostly image of the last time he saw his brother alive. Jean. Jean was crammed into an ill-fated landing boat on its way to the killing zone. Charles should have been on that boat. This haunting photograph began to untie my own bound-up memory. Beginning with an image of a young girl with auburn hair on an empty strand near Bloody Foreland. Sean! Sean Galhart, I am Flood, 
Durble Flood, and I've learned a new dance. Today my feet feel so fast, and you must fiddle them for me. She spoke to the boy, who was on his way to meet his father and go on his first fishing run. And Dervla Flood coaxed that boy, coaxed me, up to a small dwelling on the cliff top, where she handed me a fiddle off the wall, sending me on a roller coaster of a ride, her nail-bottomed boots ringing the clinker stone in front of the hearth. Her shifting, changing rhythms impressive with stamina unquenchable as she pushed my fingers and bow to the edge of their limits and beyond. Time spun and she slowed to change her dance. Young Sean caught the faint sound of the church bells signalling the fleet's departure. And to Dervla Flood's protestations, I laid the fiddle down and scampered away. But the boat had gone. Lost him at sea, you say. Full fathom five, thy father lies. Of his bones, are coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Still in America. Still in Georgia. Still in Marion Landry's house. That must be her looking a dozen years younger than the embittered creature I first laid eyes upon. You've been gone away? Yes. And have you had some breakfast? Ah, no, not yet. I've been putting pen to paper, endeavouring to recount these past six months. And? Have you proceeded very far? Ah, no, I haven't written that much. But I've been thinking it through. I was about to start on how we finally got our hands on the first movement, and how I ended up with this broken leg, and a newfound past. My dear Sean... I very much doubt if anyone would believe such a tale. And I was there, in the thick of it. And besides... And besides? Besides what, Marion? I beg your pardon? You just said besides. How did I? Well, you are not the only one to have seen the doctor. You've been to the doctor? Yes, and there might well be something more to add to that story of yours. Add? Marion? He enlightened me as to why I've not been feeling so well, as of late. Yes, well? 
And? And he informed me that I am... I am going to have a child. What? Sean Gallagher, I do believe you heard what I said. Now have a listen to this. I have been working on it, and it is beginning to come together rather well. 